0: Dandelions are not weeds. Tectonic plates sound adorable, whatever they are. A nice gentle avalanche wouldn't be so bad. We got the best campsite in the whole wasteland. Owls are popular tattoos. I can talk about ecology for months. Buffalo once roamed right where you're crying on that bench. Birds really eat worms, or did I dream that? Deserts are flying just how they are. Thank you. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent. If you listened to the first episode, then you probably remember us from that, unless you forgot. If you didn't listen to the first episode, then you don't remember us at all, unless maybe someone who did listen to the first episode recited or at least summarized the show for you. Whatever the case may be, we're a show all about the outdoors with contributors from all walks of life united by our love of the outdoors and also by the fact that most of us are male and live in the United States and speak English. But there are many English-speaking American males who are not interested in the outdoors and none of them contribute to Out of All Doors, nor will they ever. See, that's a promise to you, that Out of All Doors will die a gruesome death before I allow it to become a conduit for phony Out of All Doorsmanship. Our contributors may be a lot of things, but they are not, nor will they ever be, false in their love for the outdoors. Now, does this mean that I personally agree with everything our contributors say or do? Does every opinion expressed on the show receive the Out of All Doors guaranteed seal of official approval? No. Heavens no. No way. We vouch only for our contributors' love of the outdoors and nothing else. Their views may differ from my views, from each other's views, from your views, from pretty much everyone's views. They may be objectively incorrect. The views of our contributors may be the isolated ravings of delusional madmen. Our contributors may even be seeking to willfully inflict harm with their views. I don't know. But I do know one thing, darn it, they love the outdoors, and if that's good enough for out-of-all-doors, then I think it should be good enough for you too. Our contributors' hearts are all in the right place as long as you determine the location of the right place via very specific criteria, which we do. Listen, our contributors have been through some things, but haven't we all? I never said our contributors were perfect, I never said they were role models, I never said they were saints, except for the saint who, let me be clear, is not an actual saint as far as I know. He just calls himself that, so whatever. As far as I know, the saint is what's actually on his birth certificate, if he even has one, which now that I mention it, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't. But here's my larger point. As much as I vouch for our contributors' love of the outdoors, that's exactly how much I don't vouch for anything else about them. Loving the outdoors doesn't make bad people into good people. It just makes them into better people than they would be if they were bad people who didn't love the outdoors, and I think we can all agree on that. I just don't want you to think that our contributors have faked a lifetime love of the outdoors in order to get ahead. In most cases, I'm sad to say our contributors have not gotten ahead, not at all. Yes, their love of the outdoors has brought them here to us at Out of All Doors, and for that I'm happy for them, and I'm proud that we can provide them with this forum and the modicum of prestige that comes with it. But overall, our contributors' love of the outdoors has not spared them from failure, hardship, tragedy, criminal charges and subsequent convictions, feelings of distress and hopelessness, feelings of mounting rage, medical emergencies, a whole host of financial troubles, the contempt of their neighbors, familial strife, shame both public and private, and many other trials as well well trials too numerous to fully name but all i ask you to consider is this how much worse would it be to experience all those trials without a sincere love of the outdoors to bolster one's spirits life is tough each one of our contributors knows that but each one of our contributors also knows that a sincere genuine wholehearted love of the outdoors can go a long way toward tenderizing even the toughest of lies and that's what they and i want to impart to you So love the outdoors, listener, and love out of all doors. And we hear it out of all doors, well, you know we'll be loving the outdoors right along with you, just like we always have and always will. And we'll love you too. And on that note, let's get started, shall we? Okay, now we're going to hear from Sylvie, a former regular on the Out of All Doors blog and a mother of four who lives in Kansas. She writes, When fall arrives, my kids want pumpkins, as do I. Where do we go for pumpkins? Why, we go to the pumpkin patch, that's where. Often we go several times in order to get more and more pumpkins, so if teenagers smash them, we can replace them and let the teenagers know that they haven't won. No, they haven't won at all. We've been doing this for years, so I'd say we know a thing or two about pumpkin patches, such as how to conduct oneself in a patch, how to get the best pumpkins, which pumpkins to avoid, and how to try to keep teenagers from smashing your pumpkins for no reason other than their inability to deny the promptings of their own wicked hearts. First off, try to pick a pumpkin patch that isn't too expensive. Obviously, this means different things to different people, but I think everyone can agree that $500 per pumpkin is too expensive. Keep in mind that if you're driving a long way to get to the pumpkin patch, you're also spending money on gas, so you might be better off buying a slightly more expensive pumpkin that's closer to home, especially if teenagers keep smashing your pumpkins and you're making multiple trips a week or even multiple trips a day. You may be tempted to grow your own pumpkins, but it's important to keep in mind that if you do that, the teenagers will just sneak into your garden and smash the pumpkins while they're still on the vine. Also, when choosing a pumpkin patch, try not to choose one that's owned and operated by a man or woman with teenage children. And if there are other employees, they shouldn't have teenage children either. Why? Because these adults pass along information to their teenagers so the teenagers know where to go to smash pumpkins. Even if you know the Pumpkin Patch employees don't have teenage children, it's still a good idea to lie to them about your name and where you live. Sometimes I like to tell the employees that we're buying the pumpkins in order to smash them ourselves. So if they're friendly with any teenagers, they'll tell them to avoid our house because all of our pumpkins are already smashed. If the pumpkin patch actually employs teenagers, then avoid it at all costs, tell everyone not to go there, and try to get the city to shut it down, even if you have to tell lies to do so. When choosing a pumpkin, you want to pick one that doesn't look fun to smash. I know that for normal people like you and me, it's hard to imagine wanting to smash any pumpkins, but you have to get into the mindset of a teenager and really try to see the pumpkins through their demented eyes. Once you've done that, try to determine which pumpkins would be most likely to draw the end of your bat or the heel of your boot, and then do not buy those pumpkins. Does this mean you'll be leaving with lower quality pumpkins? Often it does, yes, but if it means they'll last even an hour longer on your porch, isn't that worth it? I also advise you against buying pumpkins with Harmel's Rot, which is a disease that infects pumpkins and makes their skins turn black and soft, and grotesque lumps appear on them, and these lumps leak gray fluid that reeks of death, and eventually noxious gases build up inside the pumpkins and they explode. While it may be tempting to buy a pumpkin like this because of its potential to deter teenagers, I ask you to trust me when I say it isn't worth it. Once you get your pumpkins home, you can either just set them out on the porch as a general fall decoration, or you can carve them into jack-o'-lanterns for Halloween. Jack-o'-lanterns tend to get smashed by teenagers faster, but not always. You can try to carve the jack-o'-lanterns into things that teenagers would be less likely to want to smash, like a marijuana joint or a bad word, but depending on the teenager, this may only inflame the teenager's sense of teenagerhood, which will make them want to smash the pumpkins even more. My family has tried a few ways of fighting back against the teenagers that have been sporadically effective. In one case, we hauled out a pumpkin and then filled it with wasps. When the teenager smashed the pumpkin, the wasps came swarming out and stung him about the neck and face and arms. Another time, we hauled out a pumpkin and filled it with cement and bolted it to our front walk. When one teenager kicked to smash it, he broke three toes. Both of these victories were temporarily satisfying, but in both cases, the teenagers' friends returned to our house with eggs, and I know of no strategies to combat flung eggs, so you may not want to do anything that will make the teenagers come back to your house with eggs. Lastly, if you're listening to this and you're a teenager, what did pumpkins ever do to you? Did a pumpkin smash your parents? I doubt it. Please stay away from our pumpkins this year. We have a lovely mailbox, why don't you smash that instead? And to everyone who isn't a teenager, I say, Happy Pumpkin Season! I call fall pumpkin season, and that's how I'm ending this segment. I want it to end with the words, happy pumpkin season. Adam, make sure it ends with those words, please. I want it to have a nice, solid ending and not just trail off in a way that doesn't really seem right. I want the end to sound like a proper ending, not one of those endings where the last sentence makes it seem like there's more coming, you know? I just want to make absolutely sure the last words of my piece are happy pimpkin season. So please make sure there aren't any more words after that. Thanks, Adam. Hope you're doing well. Well, thank you, Sylvie, for your insight on this subject, and we look forward to hearing from you again next time Anyone Cares About Pumpkins, which, I guess, will be one year from now. Okay, we are uh, we're here on Squall Takes the Bait. Um, and uh, well Squall, will you wanna introduce yourself? Yeah, this is Squall and the title is a misnomer. Squall doesn't take the bait ever. Okay, and uh, uh Matt this gig again. Matt, you gonna introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, this is this is Matt, I'm on Squall Takes the Bait
0: here. Okay, now we we started recording earlier and just like Last time we had technical difficulties, we lost some material, but basically it started out what I thought was fine. We started out talking about fall fishing. Squall was saying, uh, you know, bundle up, wear rain gear so you don't get sick, stuff like that. And then Matt just came in out of nowhere. I mean Matt, go just say what you said before, uh, explain this because I still like have not wrapped my head around what's going on here.
1: I'll I'll, I'll gladly explain because I want the listeners to hear that no one else follows the same example and makes the same mistake that I did. Now, as I I said earlier before the technical difficulties, that after the the recording of the first Qualtech debate, I'd gone out, um, I kind of rekindled a passion in fishing or ignited a a passion that wasn't even there in the first place. You know, just with all the talk of fishing, I decided, well, it's time to fish. And I got out there. excited. I bought a lot of gear. Uh, I got. I was. I, you know, cleared my schedule and went out and fished. It was one of the worst weekends of my life. Uh, I I had several injuries. Uh, the, the fishing hook tore into my skin repeatedly. Uh, I had entirely the wrong collages. I fell into water and nearly drowned. Uh, I got bitten by fish, and in all of this is exactly the responsibility it's totally the responsibility of Adam and Squaw here for perpetuating misinformation and for hosting a show whose sole purpose is to give people wrong information so that they fall for the same mistake themselves and injure themselves okay, so and I'm asking for full compensation of hospital bills so you're it's saying people actually we thought.
0: All right, but listen. You have to understand, like th- this show. I mean, yes, there's valuable advice, but it's primarily for entertainment. And and also, I don't remember. Um, I don't remember the ins- exact instructions that Squall gave. But I can't. I just can't imagine how you could take simple fishing instructions and injure yourself so badly that you need like compensation for hospital bills. That just seems absurd to me. Like you have to be the worst fisherman ever.
1: Yeah, well, okay. I mean, I was trying to use what I had. There wasn't a lot there, but what was there was was very bad and it was very, you know, caused a lot of injury. Again, I, I cast out, I tried to cast in the way to told me to cast. Well, the fish hook came reeling right back. Didn't catch any fish, it caught my flesh. It caught, the, you know, as I say, in my forehead. It caught my lip, all these things. What could I do, you know, even with the hook? Tore right into my flesh. I had to continue to finish.
0: Well, see, okay, okay. I, to to and I well, thought,
1: this must be part of it. Walt didn't say not asking anybody else. to you come know, forward with information.
0: About that they did this to themselves no. other than you because you're obviously an idiot yeah you like you are obviously an idiot no one else has written in saying that they hurt themselves by following squalls instructions okay and once you hooked yourself once and were bleeding why would you continue to, to do that and hurt yourself more like why wouldn't you just say oh I must be bad at this I thought
1: that was part of it I thought, that was it. I thought this must be part of it Squall didn't mention anything about this. This must be just part of the process that's so uh, assumed that he just glossed over it that there would be no
0: reason to question That is patently absurd. Like, no, if, you, if you're serious about, like, pressing, like, the legal side of this, can you? I can't imagine, like, a judge or whoever settles these things saying that we should have to compensate you because you continued to, like, rip into your own skin with a fish. Squall, explain it to him.
1: You take responsibility for your own actions by listening to the podcast advice. No, all you just, you don't know the legal precedent here. All, but all I'm, asking, I do not even want it to go there. All I'm asking is that my bills be compensated because they are empty. And I want some responsibility here. I want some responsibility for the people giving the information to take responsibility for the information they gave.
0: Let's just take a pause and then we'll get into this more in just a second here. We climb the steps in the drafty, creaky old house. The house is also abandoned. There's a coat of dust on the banister. The steps lead up and up, to the second floor and beyond, to the third floor and beyond. The stairs become more narrow the higher they climb. At last, with the walls pressing in close on both sides of us, we come to a foreboding door, and through the door we sense them. We sense them, and we sense them sensing us, hanging upside down from the bare rafters, just sensing away. They're in there. We open the door and step into the dark, cluttered attic. We have entered the battery. <laughs> A man, in a moment of childish terror, strikes a bat in mid-flight with a tennis racket and is immediately stricken with remorse. He scoops the crumpled form of the bat into a bucket and takes it into his garage. It stirs weakly and the man realizes the bat is alive. Over the next few weeks, the man nurses the bat back to health, refusing to name it for fear that he will jinx the bat's recovery process. One day the man comes into the garage to find the bat fluttering about, knocking against the walls and ceiling. The man realizes the time has come to allow the bat to return to the outside world. He presses the button on the wall and the garage door rises, slowly revealing the blue evening outside. The bat flies out through the open garage door and disappears. At last, the man feels comfortable choosing a name for the bat, which he will apply to the bat in his memories of the time he and the bat spent together. I'll call him Vagabond, says the man, and the bat flies all the way back from wherever it had gotten to, hovers in front of the man's face, and it uses one of its wings, which is still sore from the tennis racket, to slap the man right across the face, because that's how much it hates the name Vagabond. Two bats hung from a tree branch in a public park in broad daylight, 40 feet above the ground. A sharp eyed child spotted them and pointed, shouting, Look, look, look at those strange things up there. Other children gathered around the first child, craning their necks, trying to see what he was pointing at. The two bats were wide awake, but they did not explain what they were to the children. They kept their wings wrapped tightly around their bodies and they let the children wonder and speculate. They even let one large, loud mouthed child boldly declare them to be both dead and boring. The bats could have frightened those children, could have inspired them, could have filled them with awe, could have absolutely blown their fragile minds. But they didn't. The children eventually wandered away. Night fell and the bats unfolded their wings and stretched. But one child had stayed hidden among the playground equipment, and while his parents frantically searched the neighborhood for him and called the police and asked their friends to pray for the safe return of their child, that child watched as two bats flew around the deserted park and ate hundreds of insects apiece, gorging themselves on tiny lives. One night, there will come a group of bats, six of them all together, and these bats will tap at your window with their fangs, bared for functionality, not for menace. You will wake from a dull dreamlessness and open your bedroom window, and in will fly the bat group, circling your room, steering well clear of your ceiling fan, even though it will not be turned on. And then you will remember that you had promised them that you would make little capes for all of them. Glittery, maroon capes for them to wear as they go about their business. But you totally spaced it off and now the bats are here on the appointed date and time and you have nothing to offer them, no capes at all. The bats will continue to circle your room and the atmosphere will become uncomfortable. The more they stick around, the guiltier you will feel. And then you will realize something. They will not leave until they have their capes, so you had better get started. You will rise from your bed and, with the bats following and observing, you will retrieve the glittery maroon fabric from the closet underneath the basement stairs, and then you will sit down at your sewing machine and go to work. Depending on how picky the bats are about how well the capes fit, you may have to call in sick to work in the morning. But one thing you will never wonder is why these bats want these capes so badly. To you, at that point in your life, the answer will be obvious, even though it may not now be so. Bats are not blind, none of them are. So why could there not be a seeing-eye bat for a blind person held on a light, stylish cord and flying helpfully ahead, leading the blind person around obstacles and hissing merrily at passersby? And then, in total darkness, when even a seeing-eye dog would be useless, the seeing-eye bat could use its sonar to lead the blind person onward in perfect safety, into the craggy depths of the cave, like if the blind person wanted to visit the place where the seeing-eye bat was born, for example, or wherever. But if it turns out that bats don't find this kind of work fulfilling, then I oppose the whole idea. It's time for us to go. We've been in this attic a while, and it's been interesting. But there's really only so much to do. Besides, what if someone saw us going into this house? They may have called the cops. We should get moving, just in case. Say goodbye if you want. Some of us say goodbye, and some of us don't. But in the end, we all leave. The Battery. Last time I listed the five kinds of people you seem to meet on every mountain trail, and this time my friend Matt is going to list the five kinds of people you seem to meet around every campfire.
2: The five people you meet at a campfire. First is the mascot. The mascot is usually a bear or a mariner, but is sometimes also a timber wolf. He sits around the hot, hot fire, still wearing that costume. Occasionally he stands to do a silly dance or perform some hijinks with a firewood axe. But otherwise he just sits there, never removing his gigantic mascot head. Whenever anyone asks him if he's hot, he just points at himself and then raises that finger to the sky, indicating his team is the best. Next is the gossip columnist. There she is, trying to make her notebook inconspicuous, as she sows discord by asking who designed such a puny campfire, and why they use wood from living trees. Even though everyone can hear everything everyone else says around the campfire... The gossip columnist takes extensive notes for some later report that you never even see, and then prowls around the tents later at night to eavesdrop on whispered complaints, which are usually about who invited the stupid gossip columnist in the first place. And then there's the famous folk singer-guitarist, who always brings his guitar along and then invents some excuse for not being able to play songs from his classic, beloved album. The first campfire, he claimed he had Tennis Elbow, Next time, he said he had a sore kneecap. Sore kneecap? How does that affect your ability to play the guitar? Last time he was there, he showed up with his guitar strapped to his back. But when Kayla and her friends asked him to play, he said he couldn't slide the guitar to his front to play it. What? Not to mention that he ate far more than his fair share of the s'mores. Fourth is the escaped refugee war. The escaped refugee is one of the least welcome campfire attendees, because instead of partying and making out, all the refugee wants to do is cry and look around in horror all the time. Here the rest of us are trying to tell scary ghost stories, and the refugee has to come over and one-up us all with stories of her harrowing escape from being tortured daily by the local guerrilla faction. What a buzzkill. And I'll tell you this, too. You'll never have enough food for... What, do you think hot dogs are free? And don't expect a good night's sleep, either because the refugee will spend the night screaming out night terrors while slashing a sharpened stick at unseen foes. And then if the gorillas do come to find her, now everyone's a prisoner and has to be lashed and whipped daily. So that's just great. Finally, there's the first-timer. There's always someone who's been dragged down to the campfire by their girl or boyfriend. There they sit, shivering on a log seat, not even being paid attention to at all by their so-called girlfriend, whose Match.com profile about loving the outdoors he just took to mean a generic thing to say, and not as a mission statement for each and every stinking weekend. And now he's out here, filthy and cold, and his marshmallow just fell in the dirt before he could eat it. His tent only allows him to sleep in the fetal position. A raven pooped, I mean, directly on his head. And why, oh why am I in this horrible campfire anyway?
0: And now, again be welcome to the Campfire of Chills. This chilling tale comes to us from an anonymous source who sent it to outofalldoors at gmail.com. If you have a chilling story you'd like to contribute, be sure to send it to us. And now, the story begins like so. Devin the surgeon walked down the trail, crunching leaves underfoot as he left his broken down car farther and farther behind. Although frustrated, he tried to distract himself from the mess at hand by blowing spirals and zigzags out of his mouth, which steamed in the brisk autumn air. After about forty minutes, he came to a clearing and stopped. In those few moments, the air temperature dropped just past the point where he could smell the soggy leaves. Devin muttered what he saw under his breath. "'A shed made out of all doors? Hmm.' He walked up to the shed made out of all doors and peeked through a peephole with a scratched-up fisheye lens.' The peephole was positioned near the top of one of the doors that was mounted to open inward. The only things Devin could see inside the shed were a lit candle and the light switch that the candle illuminated, seemingly on purpose. Reminding himself that he'd had the courage to attempt desperation surgeries at work, he forced himself to go inside to look for tools, a phone, or some other kind of help that he hadn't thought of yet. Tiptoeing across the creaky boards, Devin made his way to the warm light switch and flicked it on. As soon as he did, instead of a normal light bulb coming on, a natural glow spread from a corner of the shed. In that corner was a massive tree limb, with every branch ending in a giant human-looking head, and each head was staring at him. Bald, tired, and stern, the top head nodded toward the far corner of the shed, which then glowed to reveal a gut lying on the floor. The glow faded, and the top head nodded to yet another corner, which glowed in turn to reveal a different gut. Over the next half hour, the top head revealed, a few square feet at a time, that the entire shed, made out of all doors, was filled with guts. Guts on the bookshelf, guts hanging from the railing, guts in the bread basket, guts beneath the trophy case, even some guts stacked on other guts. Then, when everything went dark, Devin bolted for the door. But it was the wrong door, not the door through which he'd entered, "'Doorknob, after latch, he tried to escape, "'his surgeonly coordination a casualty of panic. "'Suddenly a light appeared before him. "'One inch from his face, the top head solemnly looked Devin in the eye. "'We all have trades. We know your trade. "'It's time to trade trades.' "'Otherwise motionless, the top head's eyes slowly sunk downward "'until they were staring at Devin's gut. "'His gut began to glow, the same glow as the other's.' A scalpel slowly emerged from the top head's mouth, which Devin accepted. Weeping and lying on his back, Devin began a tiny cut on the skin above his gut. Instantly, the tree heads burst into laughter, which seemed more natural to them than the solemn glowing scowls. The glow that surrounded the heads popped with hues of red and orange as they laughed. Devin jerked the scalpel back from his gut. "'Wait, do I not really have to do this?' The glowing heads, in disbelief, all looked toward the top head to see his reaction. The top head frowned, clenching his bared teeth tighter and tighter as new wrinkles in his face seemingly sucked some of the glow out of the air, his eyes blazing down at Devin as he lay sprawled on the floor of the shed made out of all doors. And now we're going to hear the first of what we hope will eventually be many field reports from new bird watcher Harrison Blum.
3: I'm told there's no way to know if Eleanor is listening or has listened to this podcast. But perhaps one of you knows Eleanor or knows someone who knows her. If this is the case, I hope you find this field report educational and or interesting. I hope you take this recording as a sign that I have turned a corner, physically and mentally, and I hope you feel obliged to share my few minutes on this podcast with her. For that, in advance, I'm grateful. Perhaps this helps to prove to you, and ultimately to Eleanor, that I am a man who can change, a man who now appreciates the outdoors, a man who looks fondly upon nature, a man both confident and curious. I also hope that this transparency with regard to my motives has not rubbed you the wrong way. I figure it's best to get out in front of my feelings for the time being. I am an open book from this day forward, and in truth, I am excited to try something new. I freely admit that I know very little about birds, although I do like them a good deal. Despite the fact that I began this adventure only this morning, I find that birds, particularly the birds of eastern Iowa, are noteworthy for their simple beauty. As of this recording, I have no binoculars, nor do I own a field guide of any kind. But, it's important to start somewhere, which is something I intend to prove to Eleanor, to myself, and to all of you. Since, for now, I am not equipped with proper birdwatching gear, I will do my best to recount my findings as scientifically and precisely as my modest education will allow. That said, the bird I saw this morning was brownish in color. His beak was tiny, but his head was also tiny. In that way, I'd say his beak was proportional to his head. His wings were less tiny, but only slightly. The brown feathers on his tiny head were a lighter color than the rest of his body, as if he'd switched heads with another bird. I would go so far as to say his head was tan, except for the beak, which was a normal beak color. His stomach was not red, which I suppose is important to note, as that likely eliminates Robin as a candidate. I couldn't hear him as the window over the sink was closed, and I couldn't figure out how to open it. It seems the landlord painted over the window frame. I imagine most bird-watching is really bird-hearing, as birds are usually louder than they are big, so for now I'm at a disadvantage. I should note I've been calling this bird a he or a him all morning, but he could very well be a she or a her. I hesitate to use it, as I feel that probably dehumanizes the bird. I will likely use him for now, since that seems to be the term I most freely associate with birds. This may change, however, as I hope to grow as a person from this experience. I first saw him from the kitchen window as I was rinsing out the coffee mug I received for opening a checking account at First Iowa Credit Union. This account bears only my name as Eleanor has severed all ties with me financially and conversationally. The checks themselves, however, share the same design as our old account. Two nested birds, neck to neck, so in love they're oblivious to the check's many watermarks. I believe the bird, the mug, and the checks are all a sign, along with my finding a digital recorder in the drawer next to the phone. This recorder does not require a cassette tape, but it does require batteries, which I learned only after speaking for nearly ten unrecorded minutes. Perhaps for my next field report, I will venture outside to the grassy patch that separates the apartment complex from the road. I've seen birds perched atop the telephone lines over the convenience store, but as of right now, the lines are birdless. A crow might be too big for these lines, so I think it's safe to discount crows, unless they somehow manage to wrap their ugly black toes around multiple lines at once. I can't say for certain how tensile these lines are, but I suspect they're too far apart for a crow to clutch more than one. And now that I think about it, after searching my memory for bird names... I've come to the conclusion that the brown bird was most likely a wren, if only because Wren is a beautiful bird name, and I hope to begin this endeavor on a beautiful note. Until then, please tell Eleanor I say hello. Love, Harrison.
0: So, we're back... To we're, the listeners, I, want, I want them to hear this. I want to see the listeners... Hey, li- listen. shut up! Yes. Okay? We're back on Squall Takes a Bait. Matt is... I, I've never seen him behave like this. This is ridiculous. And what I wanted to say, and what I wanted recorded, and Squall will back me up on this, I think this stems back to... Squall, you remember this. Remember when you like first ran into him again, he had that severe leg injury? Yeah. Which was his own fault? Right, and I think that he knows that that was his own fault, and, but he had no one to blame but himself at that time, and so he just has like this residual bitterness left over from that, and now that he's injured himself again, no, 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 no. through his own fault, he's trying to pin it on us!
1: Now this has nothing to do with that. This was entirely about Squall, the so-called fishing expert brought me on here under these false auspices of Squall was a fishing expert just going to give me this advice. You know, I did, before that, I, I knew what I was doing. I, I went out hiking uh, of my own volition. I, I did it. I didn't need any expert to tell me what to do or where to go. Uh, and I made a mistake. I was responsible for that. In this situation, I was led astray by an expert who purposefully gave me misinformation in order that I would hurt myself and he probably thinks it's
0: funny too Squall he's accusing you of giving false information deliberately so he'd hurt himself I mean is that true? again I'll reiterate it's only what was edited
1: into the podcast is my words taken out of context entirely wait so you're 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 probably beside yourself right now just thinking about how much pain I'm in you're probably laughing and covering your mouth girlishly wait keep-
0: Squ- Squall you're flipping on me you're saying that this was my fault because I edited it to so that your instructions were dangerous I've already stated that but I'm just saying you're, you're That's. You're, I just want to clarify that that's actually what's happening here that is, that is actually what's happening you know what Squall I thought we had a unified front against him and now you're turning on me like a wild animal
1: I'm not turning on you, I'm saying whatever content, however you edited the content of what I said, made him hurt himself on purpose because of the way you edited it. No he purpose? Purpose? doesn't your instructions. He should listen to other, he should take my advice and listen to other people and compare my advice against other people's advice and see who's different. You know what? You're the expert. You said much. Yeah, but there's other there's other fishing experts out there. Maybe you should listen to them rather than me. Uh.
0: You know what, Squall? I edited for length, and I don't remember what else what my other criteria were for for editing. But your instructions were essentially intact. So you know what? I'm going to flip this back on you, Matt. I just, want, I just want to express to you that I brought Squall on out of all doors as a fishing expert, but I don't know anything about fishing. I don't know if what he's saying is dangerous or not. I can't actually vouch for his information. That's thats all on him. Like, whatever he said that caused you to hurt yourself, that is not on out of all doors. That is solely on Squall. Then you should not have brought me on because apparently I'm not... You're breaking the up. Breaking. You, yeah, you're breaking. Wait, wait, wait! You broke up. You said I should have brought you on as a fishing expert. That is what I did.
1: I, no, you shouldn't have brought me on as a fishing expert.
0: But you're a fishing expert. You, you, you're no, like I'm a not. you're a professional fisherman, or nope, I'm not. Well, you. I you, you all well, to, that, to that title. Well, you work near a body of water. So. That's the that's I speculation
1: at worst. That's that's coincidental speculation. Oh, I work. I, I live near a body of water. I don't
0: want to fish. No, f- you. You live near a body of water, and you work. You work near a different, smaller body of water, don't you? Aren't you a pool boy I, or a lifeguard? Or no, s- no. Yeah, that's going to come
1: out in the wash, Paul. When I take you to that's going to come out. In have to actually
0: answer for your occupation. Well, okay, listen. I, I I think I have an out... Is it possible that the casting instructions that you gave only apply to someone of, of your height? You're 5'6". Had is 6'5". Is it is it possible that, like, by using your casting techniques that because he's taller, that's what caused him to hook himself? That could possibly be it. Well... I, I mean, you should you should have said, when you were on as a fishing expert, you should have said the instructions I'm giving only apply to someone of, like, my body type and size.
1: Listen, I'm not 5'4". I don't have spindly little arms, okay? I, it, uh, it's a different casting type, okay? And I understand when you're 5'2", you've got, you got a certain type of casting that you do, but it's different
0: for me, and you got to clarify that. Because fat. Does fat I affect your casting? Oh, all right. Okay. Okay. Guys. All right. This is this is getting personal. Hold on. I'm 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 just gonna I'm just gonna stop it here. Well, after the rousing success of Gentleman's Mills' new line of outdoor snacks, they've decided to expand their operations even further now as we approach Halloween. That's right, Gentleman's Mills is getting into the costume game. However, lest you think that they're straying too far out of their lane, be assured that all of Gentleman's Mills' costumes are directly related to the outdoors, making these the perfect costumes for the out of all doors listener looking to get in on some seasonal fun. Here are just a few of my favorites Plossum, half plum half-possum. Curtis the raccoon. It's just a raccoon costume, but the wearer takes great pains in informing people that his name is Curtis. The preacher from the Black Lagoon. Disappointingly, the creature emerges from the swamp to become a lay minister. It's a two-part costume. Unforgettable. A timid hiker on a timid trail with 94 GoPro cameras mounted on the hiker and pointed at the hiker's every body part. Vine Man. Distinguishable by his small single vine. Stink Tent. A tent worn as a costume. Just don't unzip that flap. Pine Cohen. Influential filmmaker Ethan Cohen is a pine cone. Can also be Joel Cohen is a pine cone. Beard. A bear with a man's beard. This one's difficult to explain. Bird. Spelled B-U-R-R-E-D. It's a painful costume that involves being covered in burrs. When someone asks, you say, I'm bird. Like a bird? The animal? Ow, I moved. Saguaro Danger. Haul out a real gigantic saguaro cactus and wear it around blindly, bumping into partygoers and stabbing them. This is a costume contest winner. Forest treasure. A dead tree inside a wooden chest. No light or water was permitted. Cat nap, spelled K-N-A-P. Tie yourself in a huge knapsack. A stick at the top of the knapsack connects you to a cat's shoulder. Wearer attempts to follow the cat around the party using guesswork. Gentleman's Mills notes that they admit this costume looks way better on the package. Full Moon, in which you wear a shirt that says, Hello, my name is Moon. Then when someone offers you candy, you say, No thanks, I couldn't possibly. All while looking on in desperate hope that they get the joke. Turtleneck, like a pullover but with a fabric extending upward to encompass the neck. Heads or tails? The front is all rodents' heads. The back is all rodents' tails. Warning, this costume attracts predators. Saint Bernhard. Costume of a St. Bernard that's perpetually aflame. Wearer assumes all risks. Heel pup. A two-person costume, front and back legs of a dog trying to walk in high heels. brick bark Pieces of tree bark that have become entangled in crafts and such. Worn like a lousy suit of armor. And that's just a small sampling of the many, many costumes on offer from Gentleman's Mills this Halloween. I still haven't decided on mine yet, but considering my well-established love for the outdoors, I know my costume is going to be a Gentleman's Mills costume. Gentleman's Mills. It's essential to be gentle, by which we mean gentle. Welcome again to the Saint's Bestiary. The Saint, in a mere month's time, has managed to discover three brand new kinds of beasts, or at least three kinds of beasts that I'd certainly never heard of before. Just like last time, he sent me his field sketches of the beasts, which I will attempt to describe to you to the best of my abilities, and he also sent us his recorded field notes, which we will play for you after I've described the sketches. It's worth noting that the Saint seems to have employed a new recording method, as the audio has gotten significantly clearer, so that's good. Also, it's come to our attention that the Saint has recently joined Twitter, and there are rumors that he'll be posting his B-Sketches there soon, so I'd strongly advise you to check on that since, although I do my best, my descriptions of his sketches really don't do them justice. On Twitter, he is Saint Ion, at Saint Social Media, but without the E in media, so it's at S-A-I-N-T-S-O-C-I-A-L-M-D-I-A. Alright, let's move on to this episode's first beast. The drawing from the saint is of an open meadow with two beasts in it that basically look like sheep except for they each have one enormous cloven hoof sticking out of their backs. One of the beasts is right side up with his legs on the ground and his giant hoof pointing up and then the other beast is upside down resting on his giant back hoof with his four legs kind of flailing in the air.
4: Hoofback. The hoofback has a giant hoof on his back that he loves to sleep on won't roll down a hill or blow away that way. Only downside is that a single hoof back can't get himself back right side up again, so that means one pack member must stay awake to tip his buddy on his walking hooves to begin the day. To make it worse, once the packs get thinned down too bad, they get real sleep deprived and wake their buddy up too early when they tip him over in order to take their own turn at sleep. Small packs Always have big bags under bloodshot eyes. If they get too hot towards the others and decide to split, they're cooked. Ironically, on the other hand, sometimes the one staying awake is real friendly and doesn't want to cause a bother. So he just rolls into the sleep position. They can do that themselves. And joins all of his buddies without waking them. This wipes out the entire pack. So when it comes to a hoofback, you really want to find companions that are in the middle. Not too feisty, but also not pushovers who can't bear to face his friends with bad news. You really want one with discipline, not too selfish, but is realistic about sharing bad news.
0: The second drawing is of a beast that looks sort of like a cat, but it's sitting up like a human and it has a mouse pinched between its fingers by the tail. Its most distinguishing feature is the way its neck just sort of blends in with its head and the fact that it has a really wide, human-looking mouth with prominent lips.
4: No chin. No chin seems like a cat from a distance, but the closer and closer you sneak, the less and less like a cat. First off, he has no chin. A mouse died from old age between two no chins, and the older one finally carried the corpse outside. The no-chins seem gross out to no great end. Cat-like tail, but feet kind of like a human's, but the toes are all connected and no toenails. Also, up close you can see that he does not have a cat's mouth, but the lips of an angel.
0: The third drawing is of a meadow leading up to a steep cliff with some trees near the edge of the cliff. There are three beasts in the picture. They look, like, they look a little like small dogs with extremely long tails. looks like the tails are tied to the trees. Two of the beasts are charging toward the edge of the cliff with expressions of pure glee on their faces. The other one is just hanging over the edge of the cliff, his long tail anchored to a tree, and his facial expression is harder to describe, but he's definitely less excited than the other two beasts.
4: Clifftail. I watched a pack of Clifftails for some time. Seems like they build up their entire life for one big jump. The tails measure what seemed like maybe 100 to 150 feet long. The cliff tail wraps it around a tree but leaves plenty of slack. He gets a running start and jumps off the cliff. Eventually, his tail catches him and he slaps into the cliff face. The animal smiles when jumping through a canine muzzle. Then he just hangs there dangling for as long as I could wait to watch. Not sure if they keep their tails anchored to the tree when they sleep. I just couldn't tell what happens as some were suspended on the side of the cliff for the entire time I watched. Maybe they stay there for the rest of life. Maybe they fall the rest of the way down in hopes of eventually getting back to the top to jump again. They definitely could not climb up the tails too thin. I didn't see any young ones so not sure how they hold back until too excited to hold back from jumping.
0: Out of All Doors wants to again thank the saint for his tireless work in the field of beasts, and we all look forward to hearing what wonders he will uncover next. And remember to check out his Twitter account. It's Saint Ion at Saint Social Media, but media has no E in it. I wish it did, but it doesn't. We're back again now with a segment called Woodsman Wisdom from Eugene in Portland, Maine. You may recall last time he wrote in and explained how to start a fire out in the woods with only limited resources at your disposal. You may have gotten something useful out of that. It's a little hard to imagine how, but he's written in again, so let's see what he has to offer. Hello again, Eugene here from Portland, Maine. Today I'd like to talk a bit about camping gear. I know many people like their tents, their sleeping bags, their book bags, and their REIs, but a piece of gear that doesn't typically see the spotlight is the basic household television. I can hear you already. Eugene, what on God's creation are you going to do with a TV out in the wilderness? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do in a single word. Lost. Now, I don't mean I'll be losing my TV in the woods. I'm talking about this treasure of a TV show that my friend Doug recently turned me on to. Doug works at the local gas station where they have a TV running 24-7, so I'd say he knows a thing or two about television. Anyway, ever since Doug got me watching this, I haven't been able to break away but to use the restroom. I've even given to doing most of my sleeping while Heather, she's my wife, drives me to work. So Heather and I have a camping trip planned. She didn't want to go due to her job and the fact that it would put her in hot water with the bus. I said he could use the heat, and if not, I'd be remiss not to suggest that he simply exit the kitchen. Heather works in a kitchen. She made the point that she'd be the one in hot water, not the boss. Admittedly, a valid point on Heather's part. However, I felt she could have turned a blind eye to that little inconsistency due to how quick and clever my quip had been. But hey, that's my Heather. Don't know if I'd recognize her with an unfurrowed brow. Anyway, she reluctantly got the time off, and we planned our weekend in the woods. Except one problem. Okay, a few problems now that I think of it. Namely, Jack, Kate, Sawyer, Said, Hugo, Locke, Jin, Son, Claire, Charlie, Michael, Desmond, Anna, Lucia, Benjamin, Juliet, Lapidus, and Mr. Echo. Okay, if, if you don't know, those are lost characters. Sure, I could stay home. I could tell Heather, never mind about the trip, go on to work with you, so concerned about avoiding heat as you are, but what I realized is that while I've never been lost in the woods, I certainly could see myself bringing Lost into the woods. Oh, also Shannon, Boone, Rose, and Bernard. Okay, more Lost characters. Heather said just to bring my laptop. I responded that I was not 15 years old and I was raised to watch television on a, well, a television. So I called up my nephew to come over to help me load my 72-inch flat screen into the bed of my truck. Once we got the TV, DVD, player, and power inverter securely loaded, I strapped in to head into the wild. Heather followed behind in her car due to having to work first thing in the morning. Heather wasn't too keen on spending the evening in the bed of my truck watching Lost, but frankly, Heather's never been too keen on the outdoors anyway. One thing I hadn't counted on was the TV completely draining my truck's battery. Watch your TV go black 35 minutes into the fourth season finale of Lost on a flatbed at 3 in the morning. Now that's a cliffhanger. Luckily, Heather's Camry had a full battery, so I was able to just run the power inverter off her car while she slept gently beneath the beautiful night sky. I smelled the bright, crisp night air, noting that autumn was quickly sneaking up on us. I looked up at the stars, similarly as crisp and bright, and as I heard the gentle spin of the DVD drive powering up, I thought to myself, well, I sure hope this player remembers where I left off. Eugene. Okay, so that was Woodsman Wisdom from Eugene in Portland, Maine, and it was about what we're becoming accustomed to from him, so... You know... Maybe there will be more from him in the future. I I don't know. I'm starting to... Anyway, Woodsman Wisdom. Next, we're going to hear from amateur cryptozoologist Eldon Langley on his attempts to document his encounters with Bigfoot He recorded this himself on his home computer, so the audio isn't the best, but I think you'll find his account fascinating.
5: Hello, my name is Eldon Langley, and I've had many, many encounters with the Bigfoot. I've devoted my life to finding the Bigfoot, and I've even moved my family to northern Idaho to be able to concentrate fully on my search for the Bigfoot. Sadly, though I've seen the Bigfoot many, many times, I've not yet been able to document those findings due to various issues. But here for Out of All Doors, I did want to present a history of my encounters with the Bigfoot so that some record remains, even if it is, as the state investigator's office calls it, hearsay. The first time I saw the Bigfoot, I wasn't even expecting him. I was sunbathing by a lake high in the Bear River Mountains, beautiful place, taking a midday lunch on a weekend hike. I'd stopped to take a dip in the lake when I saw the Bigfoot appear. There he was, bathing majestically in the very same lake I was in. What struck me about him was how playful he was. Not the grouch he's often portrayed to be, but splashing and goofing like a little kid. I was mesmerized by him, to be honest. So much that I didn't think to get my camera out at first. When I did, I hurried over to retrieve it. It was with my clothes. And then I hurried back. But by the time I got back to the water, he was gone. The only indication he was there was a series of circles in the water, showing where he'd been. Well, that only wet my appetite, and... <laughs> Wouldn't you know it, soon enough I was out looking for him again. The second time I saw the Bigfoot I was more prepared, having strung my camera around my neck to be ready at a moment's notice. I was in an evergreen glade one day when I saw him, standing at rest, partially concealed behind a big pine tree. I walked up real quietly to him and had my camera on. I was recording video of the approach just in case he moved. It was only as I got within five feet of the Bigfoot that I realized it was just a cardboard cutout the real Bigfoot had placed there for me. I stopped the video and was erasing it to hide my embarrassment when I heard a shuffling sound nearby, followed by a low, deep-throated laughter. I looked over and there was the real Bigfoot, pointing and laughing at me. I aimed my camera again, but another Bigfoot perched in the pine tree above me threw down a big pile of needles and branches all over me. As I recovered from that, both the Bigfoots got away. The third time I saw the Bigfoot, I'd staked him out for days. I found his den, an area of crushed grass that he used for a bed. I waited outside that den for three days before he appeared. I didn't see him at first, but I heard him all right. I heard a sound to my left and then my right. I captured a blur on the film. I raced into the den itself for the first time, and just as I thought I'd had him, I noticed a calendar he'd posted on a nearby tree. Well, it was no ordinary calendar. It was Black and Decker's Bikini Girls with Power Tools calendar. I was distracted momentarily by Miss June, who had a cordless 12-volt with stud-finding capacity. I mean, (laughs) what a tool. Well, I was distracted by that calendar. I felt a tug and realized my camera had been taken from my hands. The Bigfoot juggled with the camera for a second, laughing and throwing it from hand to hand, before catching it in his massive right hand and crushing it to smithereens. He just walked off chuckling after that as I tried to reconstitute the broken bits back into a camera. When I finally stood up, the Bigfoot was gone, and so was the calendar. The fourth time I saw the Bigfoot, he didn't even try to hide. There he was, with three of his Bigfoot buddies, playing a game of poker on a massive tree stump. Where they found the playing cards, I'll never know. When the first Bigfoot saw me, he pointed and whispered something at the other Bigfoots, which caused them all to laugh. Then an amazing thing happened, though. Instead of running away, the main Bigfoot invited me to play with them, the other Bigfoots sliding in their seats to make room for me. Well, thinking this could be an amazing opportunity to catch Bigfoots not just in the wild, but playing card games, I sat down with them, secretly keeping my camera running the whole time. They gave me some wooden chips and dealt me in the game. We played No Limits Texas Hold'em, just like back home. The Bigfoots were really good players, though, and soon enough I'd lost all my chips. I wasn't done yet, though, because in the next game, I had a great hand, a straight flush. The other Bigfoots all folded, till it was only the main one and me left. Nothing left to bet, and the main Bigfoot motioned at my camera, saying I should ante it. Well, I did so, thinking there was no way I could lose with a straight flush. I lay down my cards. The Bigfoot looked at my cards and nodded in respect, and then laid down his cards. He only had a pair of threes. I stood up to celebrate, but the other Bigfoots motioned to stop me, and seemed to say, hold on, hold on. They explained via sign language that in Bigfoot poker, a pair of threes was the best hand possible, and that a straight flush wasn't even anything special. Well, I lost the camera that night, and decided to just leave after that. It was only later that I noticed that one of the other Bigfoots had taken my wallet. The last time I saw Bigfoot, I wanted to bring a guest with me to be able to have someone else see the Bigfoot firsthand. I'd recently lost my wife due to, as she said, my obsession with the Bigfoots, and was taking out another woman, Denise, who I'd been dating for a couple months. I liked Denise because she believed me, unlike most of the world. When I took Denise to the Bigfoot den, she saw with her own eyes everything I'd told her, and we'd staked out a spot to await the Bigfoot's return. Little did I know, he was already there. I felt a terrible pain as the Bigfoot emerged from behind a tree, grabbed my underpants, and pulled them up, giving me what my estranged children call an atomic wedgie. Not content there, he hooked the back of the underpants on a broken tree branch a dozen feet off the ground, leaving me dangling and flailing by the literal seat of my pants. As if that weren't punishment enough, the Bigfoot then picked up Denise and slung her over his shoulder. She giggled delightedly, and soon enough they were dancing right there in the den. What happened next, I don't care to discuss, but I did just receive a wedding invitation from Denise and the Bigfoot with a very blurry photo of the happy couple.
0: Well, we want to thank Eldon for having the lack of shame necessary to share such a pathetic story. Obviously, we can't verify any of his claims without photographic evidence. But I would like to say that not all women named Denise are attracted romantically to the Bigfoot. My friend Ryan, a respected out-of-all-doorsman, is married to a woman named Denise who is lovely and talented. And Ryan himself is entirely human and only resembles the Bigfoot in the most flattering of ways. Last time on Out of All Doors, we began reading entries from the diary of a man named Albert Tides, who was a farmer in Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl in the 1930s, which was a period of extreme drought on the Great Plains. Those first few entries address the Tides family's arrival to their land, the construction of their house, and the beginning of their efforts to raise wheat. We're going to pick up from right where we left off, though I will remind you that none of these entries are dated, and it's difficult to tell how much time passes between each entry. And thank you again to Lionel Tides, the descendant of Albert, who inherited his journal and sent it to us to examine and share with you. We begin with entry five. A dust storm came today. One of the children saw it in the distance and said, Daddy, I think there's a dust storm coming. Well, I was too busy gazing morosely down at our barren fields to look up, so I just said, Not now, child. I called my child child because I couldn't tell from voice alone if it was one of my sons or one of my daughters, and as I said, I was too busy gazing morosely down at the barren fields to look up, whether to look at an alleged dust storm or to see if it was a son or a daughter talking to me. Most of the sons haven't gone through puberty yet, so their voices aren't much different than the daughters' voices. Anyway, I kicked at the dry earth, and then I spat on it, and I did all of this morosely, too. Then the dust storm hit. Violent winds, whipping clouds of stinging dust against me, choking me. I cried out for my children to get inside, but they were already all inside because they'd seen the dust storm coming way before me and gone inside and made dinner and made up a game that they were all playing together and they already had even teams, so I couldn't join the game, so I ate my cold dinner by myself and gazed morosely at the cold ashes in the fireplace. Entry 6. Today dawned bright and beautiful. But right as I was headed out to do some chores, a dust storm sprang up out of nowhere, so I turned on my heel and went right back inside. An hour later, the dust storm subsided, so I headed back out to do some chores, but I was a mere three steps into the yard when another dust storm sprang up. I hustled back inside. This dust storm only lasted about ten minutes. I was out in the tool shed brushing fine dust off the handle of a shovel when another dust storm rolled in. I decided to just wait it out in the shed rather than run back to the house through all that swirling dust. This dust storm just went on and on, and there was nothing to do in the shed, and I got very restless indeed. Finally, I just decided to make a run for the house through the dust storm. It was terrible, and I couldn't see anything, but I managed to find the house and get inside right as the dust storm was wrapping up. I went out in the yard to shout curses at the departing dust storm, but another dust storm sneaked up behind me and blew a bunch of dust straight into my open mouth. Entry 7 This morning when I opened the front door there was a pile of dust on the porch that, if viewed from a certain angle, looked not dissimilar to my late wife. My children all insisted that this was not the case, but they didn't know their mother as well as I did. The cowardly dust storm that left the dust pile shaped like my late wife was long gone, of course, but I took its message. This has become personal. Entry 8 Today, while staring mournfully at the sky, I saw the most pathetic excuse for a cloud of all time. I scooted across the otherwise empty sky like it was ashamed of itself, as well it should have been. It was basically just a wispy white smear. The saddest part of all is how hopeful it made me feel, as if there were any chance a cloud like that could hold some moisture. As the pathetic cloud disappeared over the horizon, I actually felt disappointed that it hadn't dropped any rain on my fields, which then made me feel pathetic, which then made me hate the cloud even more. I turned to shout after the cloud, shaking my fist, and you can probably guess what happened next. I'm still spitting dust out of my mouth, even now, hours later, as I write this. Alright, well we'll stop there for this time on Diary of a Dust Bowl Farmer on Out of Old Doors, but we want to again thank Lionel Tides for sending this important historical document to us to share with everyone. If nothing else, it's a reminder that we all have a lot to learn and a lot to be thankful for, unless you're someone who's in a worse place in life than Albert Tides was, in which case, well, maybe this diary can give you something to aspire to. All right, we're, we're, we're back on our last segment of Squall Takes a Bait. Things have gotten pretty tense. There's been some personal attacks. Uh, everyone's turning on everyone. Uh, Squall's saying it's, Matt's saying it's, I don't know whose fault he's saying it is now. I'm saying Out of All Doors is not responsible for Squall's tips. Squall's saying it's because I edited his stuff wrong. Matt's just blaming everyone but himself as usual. No, I feel like Squaw has personally come into my house and stabbed me right in
1: the lips for all the advice he gave me on casting and catching fish. And he, I didn't even bring up the fact. I didn't catch a uh, fish. The whole thing really is not fact. What? You can feel that way, but unless you can prove it, it's not fact. I can prove it I'm at those cars. I got the doctor's report What more proof do you need? I'll make I'll make copies. copy That's yeah, the, the, the doctor report. <laughs> the the of podcast uh, Exactly Squall I got How dare you Go on here A fishing expert And give out this bad advice You are intentionally Trying to cause harm to people and knowing you know I have I called you know, did Charlie No. So shut out how sadistic you are, you are clearly getting enjoyment from this. This is all some scheme that you devised because you said sure. earlier you knew so. I was gonna get hurt. You said you knew oh, I was gonna get hurt. You were you were just waiting for me to get hurt. I deny that. I deny that.
0: Squall, well, I, I, I mean, I got to be honest. I was on your side, but as soon as you said it was my editing fault, I mean, I think Matt has you over a barrel here. I, I, I don't know. But, I mean, if, it's, if someone's going to have to pay for this, all I'm saying is it's not going to be me. Like, it, it might be you. It might be Matt. I don't know. But it's, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be me because
1: I don't have any money.
0: Yeah, I don't have any money either better sell all your fishing poles because you're going to need it I don't have any fishing poles what
1: well we we'll whoa! say that again I don't have any fishing poles you come on this show all about you and your fishing and the truth is finally revealed you're giving out all this advice and you don't even have any fishing poles yourself that is correct you, <sighs> Okay, I, I listen.
0: I I, I I gotta I gotta step in and shut this down. Like this is just I, I don't. This is not what I had in mind. I thought we were going to talk about autumn fishing, Matt. I just think you need to cool down or something. I, I I'm going to have to talk about this with you off the air or something. Uh, and I don't know if this goes any further. I'm going to have to get like legal representation or something. I don't know, but squall. Uh, I just want to reiterate
1: the the one who needs the representation
0: exactly I don't I don't see
1: um any reason why I would need it because this is the case that I would be laughed out of court you don't see well, well you don't know enough to words on court anymore I'm going to start God, I'm taking
0: the to Matt, so you, you Matt, just I just want to be clear. Like you agree that out of all doors is not responsible. Like I would you uh, listen. Okay, I should have I should have done a better job of finding an expert that that wasn't going to give dangerous advice. But you realize that I, mine was just a fault of like like this is my first episode. I don't know how to make a podcast. Like I, I didn't understand like the responsibility. So like we've been friends for a long time. Like this isn't on me, right? You well, know, you know, I mean, if I'm to be
1: fair, you know, most most of your comments were questions. They didn't—they were not actual, you know, a piece of advice or commands or declarative sentences. I mean, you were you seemed actually curious. It uh, might be facilitated squall, but if I'm looking at it fairly, you know, Squall's definitely the, the one to blame. He's the one who's actually giving out the advice and, you know, just spreading these lies to the wind. Yeah, but, I, um, everybody's supposed to take with a grain of salt and not believe me how do you sleep at night? Or actually, I'd like myself.
0: What? Squall, he asked you how you slept at night and then you were breaking up badly. What's going on? Oh, uh, are you saying you don't sleep fine at night?
1: No, I sleep just fine. We already know you sleep angry, Squall. He just fell into that trap.
0: All right. Well, you
1: listeners, Squall sleeps angry, meaning he sleeps in a rage, clenching his fists all the while.
0: Listen, we—I—I I, just—we. This has just gotten too toxic. I just want to shut this down now, Squall. i, I don't know what we're. Maybe we'll talk to you about cycling next time, because this fishing topic has just gotten too, too heated. And, and yeah, I, 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 I would, I would definitely accept accept that. Like, I, I, don't know if we can have you and Matt on at the same time, because this is just, he, I he, I just can't believe how laughing you're being about
1: all this. Well, you're you're enjoying this. That proves you're, how sadistic you are about this whole thing. It's like falling together as you orchestrated the whole thing. Has it caused you to be worse at your job? You know the job you suck at to begin with? Well, and then I can't do it, yeah. <laughs> look
0: at laugh, look at it, well you I mean you realize this is being recorded? Like if <laughs> if this ends up being used for legal purposes, like when he they hear you laughing like that, it's not gonna go over well in court. I'm, I'm laughing about Part of him having a job at Sony. That's but when he said he couldn't perform his job anymore because of his injuries while fishing, using advice you gave him, you laughed maniacally. You
1: laughed like, a, like an evil at job, not because
0: of his fishing skill. All right, well, I, I got to shut this down because this is this is spiraling out of control and squall. I mean. I'm glad that Matt doesn't consider me responsible anymore, but you're implicating yourself the longer we go. So, this has been, uh, I'm Adam on Squall Takes a Debate. Squall, say sign off, Matt, you too.
1: (laughs) That's okay, Matt. Sign off. Squall, sign off.
0: Close your eyes. Close them very tightly and keep them closed. Now, feel around with your hands for somewhere to lie down or sit. If you can't find a place to lie down or sit, cry out for someone to come lead you to a place to lie down or sit. Once you're lying down or sitting with your eyes very tightly closed, it's time to free your mind from the bonds of your specific time and place. Do that now. Have you freed your mind from the bonds of your specific time and place? You have... Do you promise that you have? Good. That's very good, actually. You find yourself in an autumn woods. The forest canopy above is ablaze with color. Reds, oranges, yellows, some lingering greens. And these leaves drift gently down around you as you walk. The colorful leaves crunch under your feet and everything is just so, so, so autumnal. I also should have mentioned the crispness of the air, which is very crisp, and how the sky is a little overcast, but how sunbeams cut through the gray clouds and filter down to you through the forest canopy above, which is ablaze with color. Yellows, some lingering greens, oranges, and some of the deepest, brightest reds ever. These reds are the color of blood in a good context, like a clear plastic bag of blood being wheeled up next to you because you need blood, and they found some, and now here it is. You like leaves the same color as that blood, right? All right, well, let's keep you moving along. You're wearing a cute scarf that is also ten miles long, and you tied one end of it to a tree at the edge of the woods so that you'd be able to easily find your way back to your car, which you parked on the side of the gravel road, and which is the fastest luxury car ever made. Wow, you must be wealthy to afford a car like that, not to mention that ten-mile-long scarf, which is made of pure vicuna sheep wool, which can cost as much as $3,000 a yard. So yeah, your scarf costs more than your car. Wow. Just wow. Oh, and you're also wearing fingerless gloves, one of which is pink and one of which is blue, because I'm trying not to pin down gender here. In fact, I realize now it would just make more sense to have the fingerless gloves be a nice neutral gray color. Not a girlish gray, And no, I know what you're thinking, not that boyish gray either. Right in between. You know what? You stop thinking about the gloves and you shuffle through piles of leaves making loud rustling sounds. In your shuffling... You kick up a piece of white paper with a picture of a puppy on it. Printed below the picture, it says, Reward, Lost Puppy. You look up from the paper, and there's the lost puppy, which you stoop to pick up. Then you look to your right, and there's the puppy's owner. You hand the puppy to the owner, and the owner is ecstatic. You've made the owner's day with almost no effort. Here's your reward, cries the owner, and the owner hands you the puppy. Wait, you say. A lost puppy is the reward? No, no, says the owner. The found puppy is the reward. Bested by the owner's semantic prowess, you accept the puppy and continue on your way through the autumnal woods, breathing that extra crisp air and marveling at the colorful trees, ablaze with color, oranges, reds, lingering greens, and, you already know I'm going to say it, yellows. You hold the puppy in your left arm and scratch its head with your right hand, and the puppy whistles a bittersweet melody as you walk. You recognize the melody as the first four notes of the chorus of your fifth favorite song, but as the puppy whistles those notes, the song miraculously begins to climb through the ranks of your favorite songs until, a mere five minutes later, that song is your new favorite song. You come to a tree with two spigots sticking out of its trunk at just above head level. One of them is marked Hot Cider and the other one is marked Out of Order. You put your face under the hot cider spigot. Open your mouth, reach up, and turn the handle. A jet of hot cider shoots into your mouth with incredible force. Then you try the same thing with the spigot marked out of order. And another, even hotter jet of cider shoots into your mouth with even more force. This place is the best. You and the puppy are pretty much soaked in cider now, though. You set the puppy down, and he shakes off in slow motion, spraying you with even more droplets of cider, and you run back and forth through the cider droplets, flying off of the puppy's coat like a child of any gender playing in a sprinkler. Also, because you're coated in cider, falling leaves are beginning to stick to you, Causing you to blend in perfectly with surroundings. Soon you'll look like nothing more than an ambulatory leaf being of indeterminate gender carrying a whistling puppy and trailing a miles long Vakuna sheep's wool scarf. And then you will finally feel as if you truly belong here in the fall forest, the autumnal woods, and you, yes, even you, will be ablaze with color oranges, yellows, reds, but probably not the lingering greens, because those are the leaves that stay on the trees, because, well, they're still green. But you'll be ablaze with three basic colors, and again, those colors are orange, red, and yellow. A good mnemonic device to help you remember which colors of leaves will be sticking to your cider-soaked body is to imagine a person named Orange who just finished reading a book called Yellow. So, orange, red, yellow. Get it? Anyway, now you've walked exactly 10 miles and your scarf is stretched taut between your neck and the tree to which you tied it. And you're too far away to see this, but let me tell you something. At the five mile mark of your scarf, a herd of deer comes bounding through the autumnal forest and they all, one after another, leap over your scarf. Sometimes you feel a little tremor in the scarf, and that's when one of the deer's hooves grazes it. I wonder where they're headed, that herd of deer bet you $100 is to see if the pond is frozen yet, so they can run out onto it and slide on their knees and have a competition to see who can slide the farthest. Of course, it isn't cold enough for that yet. You know that, I know that, but they don't know that. But it's not your job to explain it to them. Besides, you're five miles away. If you're going to explain the freezing point of water to any animal, it's going to be the puppy who probably wouldn't stop whistling long enough for you to explain it anyway. Ah, well, that's autumn in the woods for you. Alright then, listener, it's time for you to leave the autumn woods and come back to your real life. It's time for you to re-stand and reopen your eyes, and if your hat fell off somehow during this process, re-put it on your head. But as you do, listener, let the peace of being out of all doors go with you, even when you're inside of one. To the second episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenkoos, JJ Evans, Steve Tartaglioni, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By for making all the music used in the show. And thanks to Squall for doing what he did. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdrent at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at Huge Pop. You know what I'd really love? If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed. And be sure to check out my website, hugepop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the Music I Make as the Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you can rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. We'll be back eventually with Episode 3 of Out of All Doors.